Amen. Well, today we continue in our study of the book of Joshua and our challenge to grow strong and courageous in our faith. So please turn in your scriptures here to Joshua chapter 3. Today we come to the crossing, the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. As their journey began towards the promised land in the exodus from Egypt with the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, so their journey ends with the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River into the promised land. As the first generation crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, the children, the next generation, will cross the Jordan River on dry ground. As it began, so it ends. Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shedem, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourself, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap far away at Adam, the, the city that is beside Zarethan. And there, flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. 
Now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Father, now in these precious moments that we have together as we're looking at this amazing truth, this account, how you led your people to the promised land, crossing that impassable force, the Jordan River. Lord, teach us today from your word what will challenge us and comfort us and move us in a closer relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, the Jordan River is one of those things that in the promised land is commonly used as imagery in our Christian hymns and poems and all that. Uh, Usually, we use it to symbolize our death and entrance into heaven. For example, there's the hymn, I'm Bound for the Promised Land. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound for the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. Oh, will you come and go with me? I'm bound for the promised land. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll be forever blessed. For I shall see my father's face and in his bosom rest. I'm bound for the promised land. And then there's the third verse of one of my favorite hymns, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. The third verse says, When I tread the verge of Jordan... Bid my anxious fears subside, death of death and hell's destruction. Land me safe on Canaan's sign. Songs of praises, songs of praises. I will ever sing to you. I will ever sing to you. It's a beautiful picture. It's how we normally think of the Jordan and the promised land. I'm bound for the promised land. Will you come and go with me? But you know, it's important to understand that that is not the picture that's in the mind of the Israelites here. That's not what's happening here. They're bound for the promised land. But it's not such a happy place. At least not yet, right? Instead, what loomed in front of them when they crossed to the other side was this strong, fortified city called Jericho. What was waiting for them on the other side was war and difficulty and challenge and loss. Yes, God was going to give them the promised land. It was their inheritance. But it wasn't a walk in the park. They will make it safe to Canaan's side. But before them is not a bosom of rest, but a battle, a fight, a confrontation. Verses 1 through 6, we see the instructions from the leaders to the people to prepare for the crossing of the Jordan River. Verse 1 tells us that Joshua rose early. He's a good leader. That's what good leaders do. They rise early. They're, They're well prepared. So they're the first ones ready to lead the people. You see, the time had come. It was time to move the whole Israelite camp from the city of Shedem some seven miles from the Jordan River right up to the river's edge. They were ready to go and they went. 
And they arrived and lodged at the river's edge, but they still didn't know how they were going to cross that river. And when they came to the Jordan, it was not some small little creek. It wasn't some, you know, easily forded stream. Verse 15 gives us a very important detail. It says the Jordan River is at flood stage. It's the springtime harvest and the spring rains and the melting snows have turned the Jordan River into an impassable force of deep, fast-moving water. They knew and believed that God was going to give them the promised land. But the promised land's on the other side of the Jordan. How are two million people and all their stuff going to ford the River Jordan while it's in flood stage? For us, that's an academic question. For them, it's not academic. They're actually looking at, with their own eyes, a raging river in front of them that was impossible for them to cross to get into the promised land. It could not be done. Unless God does it for them. Has God ever led you to a place where it could not be? be done unless God did it. Verse 2 starts to unveil how God is going to do this. He's going to use the Ark of the Covenant. What's the Ark of the Covenant? All of you Raiders of the Lost Ark fans there have all these pictures running through your head, right? Well, let's turn to the Bible and see what it says. Exodus 25. Turn to Exodus 25 starting at verse 10, and we'll read the details of the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, 10, the scripture says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for, for it and put them on the four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of okea wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. You shall put the ark of the testimony that I shall give you in it. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings and their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And far and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the ark, as you kind of picture it, 
It's just a little under four feet long. It's just a little over two feet wide and two feet high. It's covered in gold inside and out. Its poles are covered in gold. In a practical sense, it's a chest where the actual Ten Commandments of God are kept. The lid is described as very special. As we read, it's called the mercy seat. It's made of pure gold. And the two cherubim, uh, the angels on the, on the two ends of the mercy seat, pure gold. The Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, then in the temple. Only once a year, only once a year, only on the Day of Atonement, when the blood sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat, making atonement for the sins of Israel. It was the most holy ceremony of the year for the Jewish people. What's the Ark of the Covenant picture for us? What's it telling us here? What's the story of the Ark of the Covenant? It's a story of God's grace and God's forgiveness. It held the law, but it was covered with mercy. It represented God's holy standard, and it also represented God's gracious atonement through the sacrifice. The ark represented both both his holiness and his gracious presence. The ark of the covenant was revered as holy. It was set apart for God's exclusive use, but it wasn't worshipped. It's not an idol. It's not a symbol of God that was to be worshipped. The ark of the covenant was the place where the invisible God met with his people. It was a representative of his presence. It was a reminder of the reality of God's covenant with his people. Inside the ark were the very words of God, the very covenant of God. It's not magical. It didn't have some supernatural, powerful box of mystical energy forces. The ark of the covenant isn't special because of what it is. The ark of the covenant was special because of what it represented. The Ark of the Covenant represented to the people that God was right there with them. It reminded them of his presence, of his character, of his covenant, of his words. (coughs) The Ark of the Covenant was to be followed, for God was leading his people. Now, we don't have an Ark. I don't have an Ark. Maybe you have an Ark. We don't have an Ark. But we have the same thing that the Ark of the Covenant contained. We have the same thing that the Ark of the Covenant represented. We have God's word and we have God's presence. We're not left without guidance. We're not left without a way of following God's leading. We have the revealed will of God in our scriptures. And we have the divine presence of God, the Holy Spirit who uses God's revealed will, his word, to lead us into God's ways. The only way to advance in our spiritual lives, in our everyday lives, is by following God's lead. And we have it, folks. God's guidance is right there in front of you, in his word. And it's in you, in his spirit. Are you seeking God's guidance today? Then you need to look no further than to what you already have. 
Now there's an important point in verse 4. Look at Joshua 3, 4. It says, Yet there shall be a distance between you and the Ark of the Covenant. About 2,000 cubits. A cubit's about 18 inches. So 2,000 cubits is a little over a half mile. It says, Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. For we have not passed this way before. They were to follow the ark, but they were to follow at a distance. Now, this distance was for both practical reasons and spiritual reasons. The people needed to keep their distance because the ark of the covenant was revered as holy, because it represented the very presence of God. The presence of God is never to be treated lightly or haphazardly. It is always supposed to be treated with the respect and the dignity and the reverence that it deserved. And the distance there reinforced in the people's heart that God is transcendent in his holiness. They were to keep the distance, as verse 4 says, so that they can also better follow the Ark of the Covenant. With two million people following at a distance of about a half mile, that distance would allow many of the people to actually see the Ark, to literally follow God's leading. They had never gone this way before. They needed God's leading, and God's presence was literally leading the way through the Ark of the Covenant. The distance actually reinforced to them God's intimate leadership in their lives. Think of the great encouragement to to their faith as they see with their eyes this raging, flooded Jordan River And then they see with their eyes the Ark of the Covenant going before them, the very representative presence of God leading the way. He cared for them. He loved them, and he he showed it to them by leading them. Isn't that true for us as well? Jesus taught us in the model prayer right at the very beginning. He said to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be your name, transcendent holiness of God. We must remember that God is our heavenly father. He's transcendent, superior, unequaled. He's holy. He's the unique, all-powerful, all-knowing one. We must properly fear and revere him. We must properly fear and revere him. And yet Jesus said as well, said, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. Intimate words, intimate words of relationship, the closeness of following him. See, God's not our buddy. God's not the old man upstairs. He is to be properly feared and revered. Yet God is our Father. Jesus, our Savior, our friend, Our leader, there's an affection, there's an intimacy, there's a caring in his family. After all, perhaps you remember C.S. Lewis said in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is not a tame lion, but he is good. The balance that is being shown to the Israelites is the balance we too need to remember that we need to heed in our own lives. Perhaps you need to evaluate, do you properly fear God? 
and revere him? Are you overly casual about the transcendent holiness of the almighty God of the universe? And yet, do you know the intimacy of a relationship like a father to his child, the closeness of hearing his voice? See, both are important because both are true. The ark is holy. It is set apart. And as verse 5, the the people need to consecrate themselves, to set apart themselves, to purify themselves. The ceremonial consecration usually involved taking a bath, changing your clothes. So why purify themselves? What does it say? It says, for on the next day, the holy ark and the holy people are going to see their holy God perform a great wonder. He's going to do something amazing. He's going to show them his mighty power. He is going to show them his awesome leadership. So where are we right now? The people are hemmed in, right? There's nowhere to retreat to. It's impossible to go forward. There they are, nevertheless, to consecrate themselves, to keep their eyes on God, to get ready for his miracle. What's going to happen is yet completely unclear to them. But by faith, they anticipated that God would bring them into the promised land. That's what we need to do too, right? When we're hemmed in with no great possibility of retreat, when there's no advancing, when there's no way to go forward, what are we to do? We're to by faith trust, anticipate That God is still God. He's still leading. And he will lead us. The next part of Joshua chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, are instructions that come directly from the Lord. Verse 7 says, The Lord said to Joshua. See, when God does something, he has multiple reasons. Uh, Most often reasons we simply cannot know or understand. So God says to Joshua, When he says this, we see one of these alternate reasons, right? In verse 7, he says, Today I will begin to exalt you in all the sight of Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. See, the miraculous parting of the Jordan River was not just to help the nation of Israel cross the river. It was also to lift up Joshua as a great leader in all the eyes of the people. It was also so that all the people would know that just as God used Moses to part the Red Sea, God is using Joshua to part the Jordan River. Joshua didn't exalt himself. God highly exalted him. These nearly identical miracles prove to all that as God was with Moses and his leadership, so now God was with Joshua and his leadership There could be no doubt about that. Now in verse 8, God tells Joshua the next step of the plan. Tell the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant to the brink of the Jordan and to stand still in it. Two million people are going to cross on dry ground, but the priests have to get their feet wet. See, living by faith 
is never a spectator sport. It always requires action on our part. It requires us to step forward, even if we have to get our feet wet. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Tell us this, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation by grace through faith is the gift of God. Yet to those whom he gives the gift of faith, he also gives actions motivated by that faith. One pastor friend of mine, one of his favorite sayings is, saved people serve people. Did you know that God saved you just not so you'd get to heaven? God saved you so that right now you would be his workmanship. Right now, he has created you in Christ Jesus for good works that you should do right now walking in them. See, only God could give them the gift of the promised land, but they still needed to move their legs in response to God's gift and to enter and enjoy the promised land. There's no such thing as the frozen chosen. God saved us to serve him and to serve others. Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Verse 9 there and following, it's this dramatic speech given by the Lord to Joshua to give to the people. It says, and Joshua said to the people, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you right now. Behold, look, there it is. It's heading right to the Jordan. And when the souls of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down shall stand in a heap. Here's how you're going to know that the living God is among you. He's going to stop the flow of the Jordan River at flood stage. As a priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant stand in the waters of the Jordan, the Lord of all the earth is going to make the waters of the Jordan stop flowing and to stand in one heap. When they stand, God is going to make the water stand. And the miracle is proof that God will, without fail, drive out all the inhabitants of the promised land. Why? Because Yahweh is the living God, not some lifeless idol. Why? Because this Yahweh, this living God, is among us. He's with us. Why? Because the living God (coughs) that is among us, he is the ruler of all the earth. No water can stand in his way. No people can stand against his will. He's the Lord of all the earth. What God was about to do assured the people 
of what he would do for them in the future. This assurance provided for them spiritual strength and encouragement that they needed for the road that lay ahead. They could move forward with confidence, confidence and faith in God, the living God, the Lord of all the earth. Folks, that same assurance is for us. When you know who God is, the the Lord of all the earth, when you know that the living God is with you, when you know that he's your father and you're his child, when you know that Jesus is your savior and the leader of your life, when you know nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, you have confidence, spiritual confidence, life confidence. You can face the trials, the battles, the difficulties of life because God is with you. Nothing against his will will succeed. What God has done for us already assures us of what he will do for us in the future. This assurance provides for us the spiritual strength and encouragement that we need for all that lies ahead in our lives. Folks, this same assurance that filled the Israelites with faith and confidence is there for you and it's there for me. Are you living your life with that real assurance, that confidence in Christ, the living God? the Lord of all the earth. Now verses 14 through 17 describe the actual crossing. With all the eyes of the people on them, the priests are bearing the Ark of the Covenant. They're going before the people. They're heading for the Jordan River. As they come to the brink of the Jordan, as the feet of the priests carrying the representative presence of God are dipped into the water of that flooded Jordan River, the flow of the river stops and this saturated riverbed dies up. The water stands, rising at a heap some 15 miles to the north in a city called Adam, creating a, a great opening for the Israelites to cross. As the people gasped at the power of God, the priests continued to walk into the middle of the Jordan River and there they stood, firm, on dry ground as the whole nation of Israel crossed what was once an impassable, raging, flooded Jordan River. They crossed on dry ground. The impenetrable barrier to the promised land receded at the power, the command, the presence of the Lord of all the earth. It's happened. The great promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the great hope of while they were in Egypt, the great pursuit of the Exodus, the great hope of the wilderness has been realized. The people of Israel are safe on Canaan's shore. They've made it to the promised land. And Joshua was exalted in the sight of all Israel. Now think about this with me. Just as God used the humble service of Joshua to fulfill his promise and made him great in all the eyes of Israel, so God uses the ultimate Joshua, Yeshua, the humble service of Jesus to fulfill his promise and to make him great in the eyes of all the people. Philippians 2, 6-11 tells us this truth. 
It says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, just as God exalted Joshua to prove to Israel that he was using him as an instrument of salvation and victory. So God the Father exalted his son through his resurrection and reign to prove that he's accepted his work on the cross in full payment of our sins for salvation and victory for his people. Jesus is highly exalted. Jesus is a name above all names. Every tongue ever created is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, think about this. Just like the inheritance of the promised land was not something that they could ever get to or or do on their own effort, so our inheritance in Christ, eternal life, abundant life, is not something we can ever earn. We can't get there by ourselves. We can't earn it through our own effort. There's an impassable barrier. It's called sin. Its consequence is death. But just as the priest carried the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan and the Lord himself parted the waters, so Jesus, our high priest, God with us, bore the full brunt of sin, of Jordan's deadly force for us through his crucifixion to make the only way of salvation. Only Jesus could move us from slavery to sin and death through his substitutionary death and resurrection to freedom and to life, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading and kept for us in heaven. Today, each one of us are either on one side of the Jordan or the other. Either we stand on the far side, still in our sin, still outside God's hope and God's promise, or we stand on the near side, in forgiveness and hope, in God's promise. And there's but one way to cross, and that's Jesus. He alone has overcome the river of sin. He alone has broken down the impassable barrier. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the other side is to take the way of Jesus. His death for our sins. His payment for our cost. His sacrifice for our salvation. Have you taken the way of Jesus? Which side of the Jordan are you on? Today could be your day to cross the Jordan. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? You talk to God, you pray. A, B, C, A. You admit your inability in yourself. You admit your sin. You admit that that sin stands as a barrier that is separating you from God. And then you believe. You believe that Jesus died in your place as your substitute to take the penalty of that sin, to break down that barrier. You believe in Jesus and see, you confess. You confess Jesus. You confess him from your heart and with your lips that he's your Lord and Savior. 
You proclaim this new allegiance in your life to him and to his leadership in your life. You admit, you believe, you confess. We pray that in our own words from our heart. Let's pray together. Father, now we have heard from your word how you did the impossible, how you broke down the barrier and, and how your people crossed on the dry riverbed to the promised land. Lord, it's impossible for us to deal with the sin in our lives. It's an impenetrable barrier that has separated us from an inheritance in you and with you. And only you can break down the barrier. And you did with your death and resurrection. So if you're here today and you'd have to say to yourself honestly that you're on the far side of the Jordan, still in your sin, today is your opportunity. Right now you can be praying and you can take that way across the Jordan into inheritance of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Admit and believe and confess. And believer, if you're here today, what's the Lord working on your heart and your life? Is it the assurance? Is it the stepping out in faith? Where's the challenge for you to take now and to contemplate and to think and to pray and to follow. So we thank you now, Lord, for your amazing word. In Jesus' name, amen.